This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 42, Battle in Outer Space. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. And I'm Daniel DeManna. Thank you again, Daniel, for coming on to the show again. This is a really good movie, and I can see why you'd want to come on. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is actually one of my very all time favorite films that Toho's ever done in general, monster or not. So I'm ecstatic to come and talk about this movie. Daniel is the Godzilla Novelization Project. Uh, he is at godzillanovelizationproject.wordpress.com. Definitely check that out. It's amazing. Thank you. I just have one small update uh, regarding the feedback at kaijuvision.com email address. If you emailed and you didn't get a reply from me, uh, it is because I was not able to receive those emails for a time. So uh, if you uh, if you sent me something and uh, I didn't reply to you, then send me something again because uh, th- there was a little bit of a mess up with the routing of that email address. So we apologize for that, but uh, get, get a hold of me if uh, you are not, if you were not able to before. In this episode, we will be covering the 1959 film Battle in Outer Space. The literal translation of the Japanese title Uchu Daisenso is Great Space War. The related topic for this episode is the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's textbook perfect way to describe the film, not do a plot synopsis, but describe everything about this great film, and then we can get the facts out of the way, and we can continue on to our opinion and discussion section. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. The Nataral are a technologically advanced alien race. Their goal is to launch successful attacks on humanity and to invade Earth. They want to thwart human efforts to develop weapons and technology that can thwart or match theirs. Major Ichiro Kitsumiya is a resolute and capable astronaut who plays a leading role in the defense of Earth. Iwamura is a dedicated and loyal astronaut in the Earth expedition to the moon. His loyalty is reversed when the Nataral put him under mind control. Dr. Adachi is an earnest, brilliant, and well-disciplined professor who is determined to stop the alien invasion. Etsuko Shiryashi is a courageous astronaut who develops a relationship with Major Kitsumiya. The plot is unified because everything the humans do has to do with the Nataral. The Nataral are the problem. The humans send two spaceships called Speeps to the moon. They use plutonium-powered heat ray weapons to eliminate the Nataral presence on the moon, but that's not all of them. The problem is solved when the humans repel the invasion force. They use atomic heat cannons and space fighter planes to destroy hostile flying saucers and the mothership. The story by Jojiro Okami and the screenplay by Shinichi Sekizawa is simple, fast-paced, and focused on action. The characters are drawn relatively thin. Okami also wrote the story for the Mysterians. The original idea was to create a direct sequel to the Mysterians, with many of the same actors reprising their roles, but that was not feasible. 
Budget figures for this film are unavailable, but you can tell that the production values are likely above average. Special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya. He and the effects team utilized a wide variety of methods to create the futuristic alien invasion scenario. The special effects all look good. It appears as though a great amount of care was used in the creative process. Ukufube composed an appropriately futuristic soundtrack to complement the film's sci-fi flavor. It is filmed in Tohoscope and has stereophonic sound. The tone of the movie is serious, and there is plenty to lose in this conflict, which results in a moderate amount of gravity. Though this was written by Sekizawa, there is not much textbook Sekizawan humor. The film has more of a sci-fi flavor to it than The Mysterians, though it still has elements of fantasy. Battle in Outer Space is not an experimental film because it was planned as a sequel to The Mysterians. It's more of a film that does everything well, which was not common in sci-fi films at the time. It is notable that much of this movie takes place in space and that this is the first moon landing in a Toho Tokusatsu film. The film reinforces the style of 1957's The Mysterians with its alien invasion and sci-fi trappings. The movie was made to tap into the same sci-fi-loving audience that enjoyed The Mysterians, kaiju films, and other American sci-fi films like Forbidden Planet. The film was released on December 26, 1959 in Japan. The film was reasonably successful, though not as successful as The Mysterians. It grossed 123 million yen, or about 2.3 million present-day dollars. Columbia Pictures acquired it for release in America, which was then dubbed by Bellucci Productions. It was the first Toho sci-fi movie to be released in America without parts being cut or added in. It was released in the U.S. on July 8, 1960. The film is rated 5.7 on that movie database. Though it doesn't have a kaiju in it, this movie is still relatively well-known and liked in the tokusatsu and kaiju fan communities. There are a couple of forces at play. The Natural concentrate on having a technological advantage over humanity, and once they lose that advantage, they are defeated. The Natural turn humans against each other through mind control, so the Natural cause division while the humans eliminate division. Director Ishiro Honda's trademark Brotherhood of Man theme has a huge level of significance to this story, as the humans follow this philosophy in every action they take, unless they're under mind control. They unite in common cause to do what they must do to defend themselves. They work as a team to solve problems, they pool their scientific expertise and resources, and they optimistically create a better future. The film communicates to the audience some of the amazing possibilities of the spaceflight era. There are many challenges out there, but there's nothing we can't do if we put our minds to it and work together. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and discussion section. I first encountered this film when we started looking at what movies to choose for this season. Uh, but also before this, when I was researching the Godzilla season, and I ran into Battle in Outer Space, and though it didn't have a kaiju in it, I was still interested in definitely seeing it because it was it seemed very big. So I saw it and very much enjoyed it. It's very different compared to a lot of the other movies that are in this season. Even though we do have the Mysterians and War in Space, this is rather different from both of those. But it's still fun nonetheless. I really enjoyed it. I really love the uh, huge amount of action that's in this movie. There are a lot of effects, too. And it's, so this should be a really fun uh, talk about this film. As for, as for me, um, this was a film that 
I had I'd heard about during my, you know, my my period where I was basically researching Toho special effects films as much as I could, and I didn't get a chance to to see it sadly until uh it's a little bit later. I I'm not enti- off the top of my head. I can't remember what year it came out, but it was the Sony Icons of Sci-Fi DVD that came out. It was it was this one that also included the H-Man and Mothra, and I'd seen Mothra before, um, but I hadn't seen the H-Man and I hadn't seen Battle in Outer Space. And I'd been wanting to see both those films forever. And again, I don't remember what year that that DVD came out. Maybe 2009, 10. I'm not entirely sure when it was, but that's when I first saw it. And I actually got it for the first day it hit shelves. I went into Barnes and Noble and I snatched it up um, because it's always a good day when you can walk into a bookstore or a movie store and you can pick up copies of Toho special effects movies you've never seen before. And yeah, no of course, kidding. Mothra. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a rarity. And you got to take those things and run. And I've been I've been messed up before by not getting those DVDs on day one because half of the time they go out of print like immediately. So if you don't get it, you're you're up a creek, and you've got to go to eBay and pay an exorbitant amount of money. But thankfully, for if there's anybody out there who actually hasn't seen Battle in Outer Space yet, a I recommend it highly, and b that DVD is very very cheap still. And I'd actually recommend it over the Blu-ray that just got released because it has the original Japanese dialogue that the Blu-ray does not have. It's a it's a great presentation. It was very well restored, from what I understand, and I put it in and watched it. And I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Again, like a lot of a lot of fans, when it comes to Toho special effects, the th- first thing you think is kaiju. And this is one of the rare examples of a science fiction film from what I like to call kind of the the experimental period between uh, the the Godzilla films that were produced in 55, Godzilla Raids Again, and 1962, or really 1961 with Mothra, which is when they were experimenting with the formula, and you get films like Half Human and Varan and uh, The Mysterians, and Battle in Outer Space is one of the only one, one of these films from this period that didn't have a kaiju in it or even just shoehorned in. But and usually Tanaka you know, was the one that was behind that. Absolutely <laughs> right. He would say, yes, yeah, so we need we need uh, we need to put a monster in this. But um somehow a monster did not end up in battle in outer space, and it is not the worst for it. It stands on its own as a really uniquely fascinating science fiction epic, you know, dare I say space opera in its own in its own regards. It didn't need a monster to make it better. It's. I, I fell in love with it immediately. I, I I watched the Japanese cut first, and sadly, the DVD is is cursed with the uh, the the deadly dub titles. Yes, but it you is. can you know it's still you can still watch it and understand what's going on you know fairly well. You can still progress through the story. You can still get a sense for the characters. But really, this is a visual treat. This film, and I watch it because I like the it looks gorgeous. Ifakube's score is fantastic. One of the, it's so fantastic. One of the top scores of his career. It is a it is a it is a masterpiece of film scoring. Everything like the the production of this thing is just it's mind blowing and it's got a fun story. It progresses well. And again, we'll we'll probably talk about this later. The characters may not be very well defined, but it's a film that lives or dies on its visuals, and it uh, it certainly lives. It delivers. It, it thrives. Yes. It delivers on the visuals. So I, uh, I'm i a huge proponent for uh, Battle in Outer Space. I, I love, love, love this film. And I cannot wait to talk about it. Getting to the score, Godzilla vs. Gigan used some of this music. Yes. Quite a bit it of it, actually. It sure did. And if you're going to use anybody's music, uh, use a Kafubes from this movie. Because it's this movie, this music seems about 
10 years ahead of its time. In oh, that I totally agree with that. Electronic stuff. I mean, Forbidden Planet also did this. So I'm not going to leave that out because yes. that was the first one to do an electronic sort of soundtrack for a, a electric film electric like this. tonalities. Yes, <laughs> but I this this is definitely good too, though, and maybe it's imitating uh, Forbidden Planet in some aspect. But of course, it's a Kafube, so you're always going to get that translation into into his uh, style. But that yes. there there is the electronic aspect of it and the for the beginning music is unforgettable you you just well obviously i've been watching Geigen since i was a little kid but <laughs> i'm a little biased but the, the music of course. <laughs> really fits that movie well too but it fits this movie just to a t it really well said too it does it like from the minute the dun 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 appears mm-hmm. over the toho logo it's like you don't blink for the next hour and a half and you don't stop paying attention. The music, Ifakube's music is, and this has been talked about many times before, is so integral to the way that those films work. And to the point where in some of those films, you almost feel like the music is its own its own character in a way. And this film, as, as I, I mentioned before, didn't have, you know, very, very three-dimensional human characters to it. So it needed to live or die on what you saw and what you heard. And the music in this is an absolute masterwork. It's, um, I mean, it, it's his fifties work in general is really, really fantastic. And again, it's it's little wonder that it was reused in in Gigan. Uh, it was, it's, 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 they made a good a good choice picking that score to uh, cull stock music from because it fit Gigan well too. Yeah, it did. Well, it there's an alien invasion really well. in that too, so that helps yeah. too. Yeah. Exactly. It, it almost feels like it's right at home. And uh, this is very, there's a, there's a lot of very, it feels like a, it was written for a space yes. movie. You know, it was. So it, it fit in Gigan really, really well. Just good stuff. And I remember when I first saw it, I, I was not aware at what point that music was going to show up. And of course, the first thing you hear when you start the movie is that dramatic opening piece that's space so opera memorable. Sort of thing, yeah. The space opera, mm-hmm. yeah. From that's so memorable in Gigan. You know, you, you you listen to it as a, the credits roll, the opening credits in Battle in Outer Space roll, and you just think, man, uh, I want to watch Gigan after this. No, you never need an excuse to put in Godzilla versus Gigan. That's that's good for any time, but no, it definitely I, made I don't, me feel I put nostalgic. It out a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. So this is another thing about kaiju films. There are a lot of them that, whether in the Godzilla series or otherwise, there are a lot of ones where the events take place in the near future. It's very common. It yes. was done in the Heisei period as well. It was. Mm-hmm. It's a very common, but it, this is six years after the present in 1965. Yes, but it's, it, we get we start right off and we get the initial attack. What we would think of as the as the ISS now, basically, yeah. Be doing only that's a lot bigger deal. Of course, it, I, yeah. It's funny with the fifties and the sixties. If you go five years in the future, you're in Jetson's land, <laughs> and 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 now it's like, oh wow, we've, we're we're a lot slower than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, with the late fifties, anything seemed possible. This stuff seemed. Like it was very easily five years away, if not closer, mm-hmm. in the late fifties, and that was that was a sentiment that was felt all around the world. And Japan really took that ball and ran with it because of their, like the way that the the allowment for kind of a, a more of a not fantasy esque but fantastical musings about the future. 
uh, they, they, you know, they, they felt like they could go there, I think, a little bit more. And of course, they're wonderful, imaginative 1950s and 60s uh, space films and ex- space exploration films, alien invasion films from America during that period. You mentioned Forbidden Planet. It will come up again later in this episode, but uh, George Powell's Destination Moon, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And Destination Moon was very, it was supposed to be, if we're going to go into space, this is probably what it's going to be like. And that's kind of the attitude they were going with with uh, for Battle in Outer Space as well, was trying to make it seem plausible and realistic. But at the same time, there's that that fantastical, and not fantasy fantasy, but fantastical futurist streak going on in this film that you don't really get with a lot of contemporary English films. Yes. That dealt with the same that same kind of genre, and that's one of the things that's really appealing because it's it's a genre that you recognize and it feels familiar. But once you get inside, it's its own unique thing. Just like Kaiju Ega is its own unique monster movie brand. You know, it's the uniquely Japanese stamp that they put on it, and that's one of the reasons this film is fascinating to to watch and pick apart. So the first scene we get is the train. It's a really great start, and the aliens are really jerks doing this with the bridge. Seems petty and <laughs> cruel, but levitating things and the special effects too is something we see a lot in uh, Dogra in five years. Yeah, which see a lot of that's that. a good point. But we get the great media scene at the start too. This this movie is really good with with that, and the, we get the American reporter who is especially nice to see, kind of unexpected. And we have this nice painting yes. of the American ship destroyed in the Panama Canal. And then like in the Mysterians, there are all these strange things going on. And the reporter yeah. from Italy is uber rare and special. Who would have thought that Venice would ever get mentioned in a tokusatsu movie? <laughs> and, and a water spout kind of makes sense in a place like that, though. That's probably one reason yeah. why they picked it. But it's probably it's, it's just great. It really immerses you in this futuristic world, international news everywhere. Immediately, we're on top of things when they happen. Yeah, it's it's pretty much it pretty much starts starts things off with a bang. We get the exploding station, we get the bridge, and then the world just like explodes into this thing's going on and the, the the multinationalism that you see there. And again, this has been talked about many, many times before, very Ishiro Honda. And it just gets more and more multinational as it goes along. But it's a nice little taste of what you what we're going to get later with um, the multinational uh, approach to going up to the moon and the you know people building the rocket ships at the end. But seeing the news report is really, really cool because that's, I always like that a lot in, in films because it seems like a lot of science fiction films from the period have that moment where you have like maybe four or five different languages worth of people talking about it. The day the earth stood still started out with the same, uh, mm-hmm. that same moment where you had all these different nationalities speaking. And I remember as a kid when I watched that film and it did go to Tokyo or at least somewhere in Japan at some, at some point with the family watching the, the news and I was hearing it in Japanese and it always kind of reminded me like, oh, you know, I should watch a Godzilla movie after this. Yeah. And it's in, it's it's interesting to think that it, it kind of works in reverse now because now I want to go watch uh, Dead the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. I also think about uh, Rodan and also Destroy yeah. All Monsters. Those are two big, huge examples of when they did that again. Exactly. This mural of the space station or the space research center, mm-hmm. that is tight. That's it's, amazing. It's gorgeous. And the, the there are even the little, little vehicles moving. animated. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. 
And it establishes this futuristic place where all these nations of the world gather together for this important stuff. And it's, it's, yeah. it's really beautiful, though. They really – the the art in this yeah. is quite fantastic. And we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're at the height yeah. of Japanese cinema like this, and it, it mm-hmm. shows. It's it's grand. It's just grand. And the, the, the live action uh, stuff, not the interiors, but the, the exteriors with that, that great kind of cool, the, the building, the, the space center building with all the flagpoles. And that was actually, there was a real place that was actually built for the Olympics. Yes. It was Which built the, in 1959 yeah, leading up Olympics to the Olympics. Is, uh, mentioned in episode nine uh, for uh, yes. Mata versus yeah. Godzilla. And here at Kaiju Vision, we have gone on the Olympics quite a bit, actually. And yeah. we're, I'm very much anticipating the exciting 2020 Olympics, and we'll have I'll have stuff about that on the show as well. But yes, this was cool. this was a nice futuristic looking building that was built specifically as a I believe a stadium, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. and it was brand new, so that it wasn't damaged or anything. It didn't have any wear and tear on it. It looked like a building of the future. That's why they that's why they picked it. I mean, they, it was available. It looks great on screen. I mean, when I first read that, I thought, man, it could have been a space station just from that one angle you see of it it could very easily it felt like it could be for something very very futuristic and of course for the for the olympics and it was you know five years away at that point but you gotta you know you gotta start early on these things and luckily for them it was ready for them to use at that point but when you take that and you combine the stuff that was in the you know like the interiors of this space the space building and then the beautiful matte painting for that shows the outside, the illusion is stunning. Yes, that you're in this futuristic space where uh, mankind has come together to take on any potential threat that might come about, or just to explore space, just to do something scientific, scientifically new. The the aspect of uh, the frostbite, this method that they use to freeze objects to absolute zero, so that the atoms don't move and then they lose gravity. Because yes. they lose gravity, and then they're subject to the Earth's rotation. But they, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite interesting. There's apparently an article in a journal of science in 1959 that stated that at absolute zero, an object's gravitational pull is eliminated. So with that's, this, that's absolutely true. With yeah, this that, movie, that, they're pulling yeah. back on the fantasy, and they're pushing more forward towards the, the science fiction direction. Exactly. And if, they're actually from modern. Yeah, they're not from a modern really pulling things out of nowhere. They're, they're actually yeah. diligent on the science. They're thinking about it. Yeah. And, and from a modern perspective, looking at that now, it sounds like the classic, you know, science mumbo jumbo. The, the, the like, oh, things are floating, and here's the answer. But no, it was a concurrently written article on the topic, and during this period, um, a lot of the creators at Toho were pulling things out of headlines. I mean, the the one of the more famous examples is Rodan and the the jet exploding, which was pulled from a supposed UFO encounter that took place in America. And Tanaka saw the headline and he said, well, I'm going to stick it in the movie. And so those things definitely happened. And um, again, I remember trying to find that. I read about it because when I first saw the movie, I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that, sure. That, sure, that yeah, that explains that. Now we're gonna move on, and yeah, then the, I yeah, discovered that the guy it was from something the first film, uh, who uh, he, he <laughs> flying saucer man. <laughs> yeah, he, he showed up and was like, "Yes, that's completely." She slipped into another dimension when she jumped out of the plane, <laughs> and you're done. What's really funny is if you watch that scene, there's a Natal UFO <laughs> prop on his desk yes. from this movie. Yes. <laughs> That's interesting connection. 
absolute zero tech comes back multiple times in future films. Um, yes. With the Atragon and Kiryu many, many years later. Yes, but it's the first time it's mentioned. Yeah. That's right. But it's the first time it's mentioned. And it seems so kind of crazy, but it was something being discussed at the time. And it really shows you how much homework they did going into this film. And it's so appropriate, too. The thing that I most am amazed with in it was in Rodan when they actually mentioned global warming. Like in 1956. Yeah. yeah. They really had that right. But anyway, we see George Conway again, and, and he's from Gorath and from the Mysterians, but he's playing a different character. And uh, he's always yes. welcome to see. We see him a number of times. Then our, our two biggest characters are probably Major Katsumiya as well as Dr. Adachi. And these are yes. two really hugely yeah. important characters in the story. And w- once you describe the first five characters or so in this movie, you really start, start running on empty because mm-hmm. it, it isn't yeah. that kind of a movie. We aren't fleshing out all these characters because it's, it's more about the action and it's more about the events and the scenario that takes place. But it's That's um, well said, but I do yeah. like that. I do like these two characters particularly too, a lot. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to Tucci in a moment. But I mean, oh, yeah. these, he's his these own two characters, yeah. <laughs> but these two characters are are interesting, and and Doctor Adachi is kind of a good stand-in for who I would guess would be sort of Takashi Shimura. But at, as is, we well, mentioned in the this, last the, yeah. episode, everybody else at when they were filming Battle in Outer Space, probably everybody else was filming the Three Treasures. So that's why we have <laughs> it's like this movie yeah. is pretty much everybody who didn't do Three Treasures. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because again, Korea Senda, who's um, who's basically taking over. He his character is the same doctor. He's Doctor Adachi. He's playing Takashi Shimura's character from Mysterians. Right. You know, it's the same character, and same with uh, Harold Conway. He's the only one who came back as him as himself. And of course, the the connections between the Mysterians and Battle Matter Space are tenuous at best, because plans to make it a super duper direct sequel didn't make it into the final script phase. Mm-hmm. But um, he's he's interesting, and I definitely like Korea Senda. He's a great actor. Yeah. he's really really cool. He was he's got the same kind. Of, he doesn't have. I mean, who who could who else could be Takashi Shimura except Takashi Shimura? But he has a similar kind of a, a feel to him. When you, he walks on screen and you're like, okay, this guy's a scientist. And uh, so he's he's great in the role. And here's a here's a fun fact that I, I recently discovered. Apparently in real life, he was Jerry Ito's uncle. Jerry Ito from oh. Mothra. He was Clark Nelson. Yeah. 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 The, the so American-born re- Jerry Ito. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, they were related because uh, Cody Ascenda was not uh, his real name. You know, it was a pseudonym that he acted under. But um, he's great in the film. Of course, Rio Ikebe. And Rio Ikebe is an interesting case because he, in this film, he's very bland. Yeah. You know, his char- his character is very bland. So you kind of get the feeling that, like, that's just kind of how he is. But if you watch a lot of his other films, uh, non-genre pictures, um, specifically uh, Ishiro Honda's Farewell Rabal uh, and other films from that period, I mean, he, um, he's an incredible actor. And he, he actually had to prove himself because he was originally... He, you know, he was a, he was about forty when they shot this film or so, but he was still good looking. And when he was younger, he was like the heartthrob, you know, <laughs> in oh. Japanese film. And mm-hmm. a lot of critics were like, "Well, that's all he can do. He can be a heartthrob." So he had to he basically had to prove himself, and he did. And he became a very highly respected uh, dramatic actor. And he didn't do a lot of genre stuff um, after this. Gorath, he was in Gorath, and then of course he was in War in Space many many years later. 
um, almost a solid two decades after this film was right. made. But um, this film does not really display the full breadth of his acting ability. And again, it doesn't hurt the film. This is a film where I the, the, the thinness of the characters, to me, doesn't hurt it. Because to me, it's not about the characters. They get you where you need to go. And there's enough there for you to sympathize with them enough. But again, it's the visuals. It's similar to Destroy All Monsters. It's very similar to Destroy All Monsters, actually. It's it's, it's about the events. It's not about the characters as much. Yeah. And we don't need every movie to be a character study, for goodness sake. No, I don't think so. (laughs) There's a time for it and there's not. Um, Yeah. It's it's very documentary-like, which, again, very Honda-esque. But there are a lot of moments that feel like a documentary in this, where the camera just kind of sits there and films the scientists doing things. The documentary feel helps the film a lot to not be so character oriented because it, it at the end of the day, again, at least at least to me, it, it didn't need to be. It is a history of character oriented. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So Dr. Ahmed, he gets <laughs> hypnotized, mind controlled in this meeting. And this is the first time we've run into mind control in Yes. Tokusatsu, which that this reappears uh, particularly in Destroy All Monsters. It's mm-hmm. messed around with a lot in the Heisei period. There's mind control is a thing, and sometimes it's the monsters that are being mind controlled. But this is the this is really the first time that that happens. Then there's this wonderful little tense moment, and Itsuko it's, she gets the daylights just scared out of her seeing him disappear in this red light. Yes. She's scared to death. And she does a pretty good job with that. And once you figure out that invaders have teleportation technology, you realize you might very well be screwed. Because <laughs> this is very true. Teleportation yes. technology is very powerful. <laughs> and that and once you realize you're up against somebody that has that, it's like, oh no, we're really out of our league, aren't we? Yeah, and, we're in we're in trouble here. And Iwamura appears, who is played by Yoshio yes. Tsuchiya, which I can see why he didn't do three treasures. Of of course he would be doing this because of his yeah, personality I, and what he loved doing. And he gets to be the guy who gets to be mind controlled by the aliens at yeah, that. Yeah, he he was finally starting to live his dream. He uh, he you know he was he's a fan, fantastic actor, and it was around this period that he was starting to finally get out from underneath the uh, the thumb of Akira Kurosawa, who'd taken him under his wing and had basically forbidden him from doing a lot of the more unusual roles that he so wanted to do. He wanted to be in Godzilla, even if it was just the original one, even if it was just a minor role. And Kurosawa was like, no, no, <laughs> seven samurai, bro. Finally, Tsuchiya got the, ch- I mean, he was in Godzilla raids again, but it was a very, he was a pilot in a plane, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a very unusual exotic role, uh, which is what he wanted to do. And of course the Mysterians was where he finally said, I don't care if I'm in the helmet. I want to be in the movie as the weird alien guy. And they were like, sure, you can be the leader of the aliens. They won't see your face. Is that okay? That's totally fine. And in this one, he gets to take the, the strangeness up a notch. And it's saying something when playing a, you know, an, an alien in a cape and a helmet where you can't see your face, isn't your strangest role. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he is he's he's nuts in this film, but he's not hammy. He's he's he no. acts, but he doesn't overact. He's quite perfect. Is is the earnestness that I love about so yes. many of these movies that the, the acting is done with so much earnestness, and then there's so much fantastical stuff going on, and yet they're still so earnest. It's it was one thing I love about the acting in all these movies. But uh, oh yes, Tsuchiya really nails it, and he his he, he expressions are dead on, and it's it's yeah. It's just enough 
he hits the tone just perfectly. I really love it. This is one of my favorite Yoshitsuchiya roles that he's ever had. Oh, I mine mean, too. Yeah, Me there is too, control absolutely. of Planet X, but eh. yeah, everybody. In, in this, it's we get like to saying, see his face you know. a lot more, and we get to see him <laughs> yeah. really act. And I yeah, it's feel like, like the movie really benefited from that. I agree. It's 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 like saying who's your you know who's your favorite kaiju and you can't say Godzilla you know who's your favorite what's your favorite Tsuchiya role and it can't be the controller you know it's similar to that I mean Uh he's his performance as the controller is immortal I mean it'll it's it's incredible I mean same and I'd say the same for uh Shindo from uh, King Ghidorah in 91 I love that role he he considered series Oh, absolutely. It's just, it's so, it's, oh, it's so good. But he's, he's great in battle in outer space because he, you know, he was an, he was an oddball in real life. Um, and he was the best kind of oddball. He committed to these roles. He believed in these roles. They weren't just, it wasn't just a job and it wasn't just like, okay, now you're, now you're an alien in a B movie. No, like A, these weren't B movies and, um, far from it. And he took such care in crafting, like how he would do these things. And again, the, he's probably the most fleshed out character in the film. And he's uh-huh. even, he's not even that fleshed out as a, I mean, when you would compare it to something, something from the a similar period, I mean, even like three treasures came out the same year. The characters in that are far more fleshed out than battle in outer space. And the Mysterians was somewhat light on character in some places, but even it had more characterization than battle in outer space does, but it doesn't. And again, it doesn't hurt the film and Suchia being kind of the 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 human, you know, our, our way of getting into the story because he's experiencing the story from both sides. He's at once alien and he's at once human, and it's really our only peek at the aliens too. I mean, we don't really know their motivations that much, and um, our right, only just like destroy all monsters. Them, we're we're not here yeah. to, to think about why why are they doing this. It's not that kind of a thing. No, it's like no, we gotta we gotta get right to the right to the action. Yeah, and that's what this one is too. And Suchia is a great bridge between us and the human characters, and us and the aliens. And it's really the only one we get on the alien side for sure. In addition to just the talent that he had, the raw talent that he had as an actor, he's just fun to watch. Yes. You know, he's just he's just fun to to watch him do these performances because he was so into it. He was so committed to it. And that to me is one of the most magical things about watching Suchia-san act and uh I uh I I miss that man. I really miss that man. Mm-hmm. He was he was he was a joy. I don't. I wish I'd gotten to to meet him. I've uh, I've been lucky enough through conventions to to meet many of the golden age uh, actors and actresses, and I I value all of those those meetings a lot. And I, I dearly wish that Suchia San had been among them because I uh, he's a he's a hero I, to me. I know I love I love the way he approached things, and I really um, I wish I'd gotten to tell him that. You know what I mean? I wish I'd gotten yeah. to share that. He seemed to be very uh, for- forward-looking. Very much so. Very, yes. Yeah, very much into the future, and he believed that there would be alien contact at some point. Yeah, he, like he, he believed reported it. Like he believed yeah. it was imminent, and yeah, he was, he, I believe, probably was looking into forward it. to it. I think so, too. He he claimed to have witnessed UFOs on several occasions mm-hmm. um, early on in his, uh, in his life. And he was uh, he was a member of at least one very forward thinking scientific society, and um, you know it, it was his idea in the Mysterians that he he'd read a, a, an article about the the land being sold on Mars at random. So that line in the Mysterians came from him uh, throwing it in there, 
And that's a that's a, a more famous story. But he was definitely forward thinking. He was definitely thinking about humanity's future. I, th- I think that he felt he was taking a part in helping to form our vision of what that future could be through his roles. And I think he he succeeded because, I mean, even even though we don't have space stations or moon bases or, you know, we, we're not mind-controlling monsters left and right, we still want to see that future, you know? It's, it's amazing to think that this film next year will be 60 years old, and when it was made, Tsuchiya-san and the people involved with it were f- fully uh, in the belief that we would have, by 1965, we'd have a space station. You know, and a but, moon landing and all of this. And moon landing. I mean, and we, you know, we have a space station now, but it's not nearly the science, the science fiction version. We've landed yeah, it's people not quite on the 2001 moon. A space Odyssey. It's not quite, yeah, it's not quite 2001. It's not quite uh, that science fiction-y. But um, we've done amazing things, but we, we're not colonizing the moon. We're not colonizing Mars. We still look to films, even older films, for that promise of a future. So it's crazy to think that all these decades later, these films that are saying, yes, this is possible, are still kind of saying, yes, this is possible. I think Suchia would be happy that there are many people that still watch these films and have that feeling of, yeah, let's make let's make a rocket that can just was it a couple of years ago, uh, they finally experimented with a rocket that could uh, lift off. Like a, a classic style yes. <laughs> rocket, then then it lands on yes. its back fins. You know how like many in movies this movie. were vindicated when that happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> so many movies. Like I Astro Monster, that this obvious one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. A, Astro a Monster, whole bunch and of these. Like, they, they were finally yeah. vindicated. It's like, yes, they yeah. are landing. Yeah, right side up. And I was so happy. And the yep. first movie I thought of was Battle in Outer Space. Mm-hmm. I actually thought of that before. I thought of. Uh, Astro Monster. <laughs> I went. I went. Man, landing on the moon. They're, they're going backwards like that. And um, yeah, like that kind of stuff. I think he'd be he'd be happy to see. And I think a lot of the people that worked on these films would be happy to see these things happen. But also excited at the, the fact that we still haven't accomplished these things, and there are people that want to yes. out there. Especially in the fifties, it was about imagine the possibilities. That's yes. Every, so many different movies have come yeah. out of that premise. Yes, and the idea of the potentiality of humanity's future, especially, you know, the scientific potentiality has, you know, that period, especially in the late 50s and early 60s, produced some unbelievable movies that were just so full of that that hope. Hope is a big word when it comes to this stuff, and uh, just like, I, you know, we can do this, you know, and if we can't, we need to work to get it, and then we can do it, because there's nothing we can't do. Yeah, you know, it, it, like stuff like we can do this. We can create a plutonium powered yes. heat ray gun that we can defend Earth with and destroy aliens right. if necessary. <laughs> like Abs- all, all of <laughs> Absolutely. these things are possible in the future, as well as the the uh, the spips. I guess that would be the yes. the spaceships. Yeah, and, and there there are so many grown up sci fi toys in this movie that all these scientists are loving. And there's something oh, important yes. to notice here about how there's a bit more science involved in this, obviously, and because Mysterians. The Markalite Fops, that's pretty fantastical. Yeah. But then yeah. this movie's a bit yeah. more realistic than that. And then it, this has more plausible technology, especially uh, the fighter jets, these space yes. planes. They look so futuristic, yet functional. And those fighters are based on the X-15, that uh, the fighter that was released by the U.S. in 1959. And these fighters were special because they were the world's first space plane. They could go over 50 miles above ground. 
And so That's technically amazing. the pilots of these planes were considered astronauts. But yeah, this is a absolutely absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it's a hypersonic, faster than sound, rocket powered experimental aircraft. So quite amazing. And this and that's what a lot of the what these fighter jets were developed off of. But it's really wonderful technology. And the X fifteen is just an incredible example of the power of you know, what is possible in the future to create. And the, exactly. And you're, you're looking at the future when you look at that. Dr. Ahmed appears again, and he's engaging in all this espionage and violence on behalf of the aliens, because it's a big thing with the aliens that they want to get rid of this nuclear powered heat ray gun. Cause they want to get, they want to get rid of that and any, any other technology that might rival theirs. Yeah. But he really fools them. And he takes advantage of their sort of docile behavior and he takes Etsuko hostage. And then he announces that he's from Natal and just like the aliens are, and he's a voice for them. He's just an object. But of course, then they drop mm -hmm. an object on him and knocks the gun <laughs> away and hurts his hand and his arm. And then but yet he triumphantly leaves, even though he failed in his mission and disappears. And he is discovered that he was being controlled by this radio apparatus that was implanted in the brain, which that made me think again of uh, Destroy All Monsters. Very Destroy All Monsters. And so they have a base on the moon. And then this is just like in the Mysterians kind of where they had uh, the base that's on the dark side of the moon. That's where they're operating out of. And they're, yeah. they're using that premise again. I could talk more about how this was meant to be a sequel and how all of that connects with war and space later on. But I really feel satisfied mm -hmm. just saying that. I mean, the, 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 talking about this is like a pseudo trilogy or whatever. I don't know what that means, but it, it's, it, <laughs> these are so disconnected that I, I really don't want to call them a trilogy just cause it's, there were so many changes that were made in between them. But the, yeah, one thing that's fun here is though that the UN works faster and more effective and more united in this movie than the UN has ever been. <laughs> this it's, is very true. Maybe, maybe that's the most fantastical aspect of the whole movie <laughs> is that it's maybe it's that's just the most unbelievable optimism. thing in this movie, but it might be, <laughs> they decide to land in a low lying area of the sea of rains or the Mari Ibrium. And that is actually where Apollo 15 landed in 1971. So that's, that's right. Yeah. So that it was an impact from uh, an asteroid meteor and it's a uh, crashed into the moon and that created uh, a lot of the topography of the moon. But that's one of those places that they landed. And when they did the Apollo project, Tsuburaya, he told Toho that he thought a moon landing would be taking place soon, like eventually, but it's destined to happen. And so yes. they should do something in the movie about this. And the events in the film take place in 1965, and then the actual moon landing would appear uh, and happen in 1969. So he was only four years off. It was actually the, pretty yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty good guess. The, the amount of uh, scientific, uh, I, I guess, um, prediction <laughs> that happens in this film that ended up being pretty close to true – some of some of the things like the gra the way gravity is handled were obviously that's not how it works, yeah. but um the yeah the way that they handled a lot of it was shockingly accurate. I mean, in terms of just creating the imagery, it was ten years before the moon landing when the story takes place. Like you said, it's only four years. That's a pretty good mark to hit. And fifty nine was a good year to be able to do this because nineteen fifty nine was the year that um the first pictures of the dark side of the moon were taken. 
Mm-hmm. And Subaraya realized, well, soon we're going to know what the moon looks like and we're going like, to we're gonna lose an element of the mystery. And so that's one of the reasons that this film ended up getting made and made the way it was. Yeah. Because they, Subaraya said, like, eventually we're going to know, but we want to have this opportunity to, to, to do this and try to make it as realistic as possible before they point at us and say, ha ha, you, you know, the moon doesn't look like that or this and that isn't right. Even though the, the moon's topography, uh, which I, I will talk about a little bit more when we get to the effects, were, you know, it's not entirely what the moon looks like. It was close, closer than a lot of movies during the period, you know, depicted mm-hmm. the moon. So yeah. the uh, I remember the, the effects staff in the 60s, the late 60s, uh, the mid to late 60s, when more photographs of the moon finally came out, when they when they saw these pictures, I, um, I read somewhere once that they were very, very, they felt very vindicated. Uh, we yeah. were right. You know, we, yeah, overall, we, we got I'd pretty be close. pleased with that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd be like, yeah, we did a pretty good job. We got pretty close. Yeah. The scene where... We have uh, Iwamura, and he's in his car, and he gets taken over by the aliens. It's just fantastic. Yeah. He does such a good job doing with with his expressions, like we said. And did you notice the steering wheel of his car is on the left? I did notice that. Yeah. I did notice that. I thought that was very unusual. I, I don't remember which viewing I caught that the first time. But the reason I noticed it is because when he takes his hand off, it continues to kind of drive itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the steering wheel just kind of jiggles from side to side, even though he's not touching it. And I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, this is Japan. What's happening here? Something's uh-huh. not right. Yeah. It's, I honestly don't know quite what was going on with that, that scene. I, I mean, I, I, know, I don't know if it's, I don't know. Interesting. I, was, I know. I sort of wonder if like they thought that in the future standards and practices would be so homogenized across the earth that everybody would be driving <laughs> on the right side. Everybody would be using the metric system. <laughs> crazy, <laughs> crazy ideas like that. Crazy stuff. That they man. had back then. That I, <laughs> I couldn't I help but notice I that. I was like, wait a minute. Shouldn't that be on the yeah. other side? Anyway. I wouldn't, put, I wouldn't put it past them to have snuck in something like that. I mean, this movie was written Not everybody by would have noticed Sekizawa, it, but so I think Japanese people would have noticed it, though. I think that would have like we're so used to it that you know it took it did take me a while to notice it. I don't remember when I saw it the first time, but then I thought, man, something's off about this. But in 1959, I'm sure Japanese viewers were probably thinking to themselves, "Why is wh- yeah. what? <laughs> like that's that's not yeah. right." That's a good observation. Yeah, they'd notice that. I love the scene where the astronauts are essentially having their rock star moment. They get yes. the military send off, huge military send off, and a, and a tick, ticker tape parade, and that's I love that really true actually, and it, and it was back then. I mean, ro- astronauts are still rock stars in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but they Absolutely. definitely were during the Apollo program, to be sure. The, the American astronauts back in the golden age, in the in the fifties, sixties, they they actually had a book, and it had the addresses of women. And they could essentially call any of these women anytime and it would happen like that. Mm. That is how these guys were literal, like how popular they wow. were. Like it, it yeah. was quite amazing. Uh, they, That's crazy. Yeah. The astronauts were mostly American and Japanese on the expedition that's in the movie. And it, yes. and the movie came out one year and we, uh, we talked about this a lot in uh, the episode on Mothra which is the signing mm-hmm. of the security treaty, which that, that happened in 
for, for 1960. So this was right before then. And so this movie did have a little bit of consciousness about the fact that the security treaty was going to be in effect in the future. And so it's in the movie uh, reflects it. It isn't mentioned, but it's no. kind of, you can tell. I couldn't help but notice regarding, it's not an effect, but the tower that the astronauts take up the ship and you see it as during the launch scene of these yes. two rockets, that tower is incredibly detailed. There oh, it's are amazing. So many pieces yeah. to that. It is. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's, I was it, almost yeah. shocked seeing that. It was it, like, talk about attention to detail. This is very yeah, nice. th- this movie, this movie is full of little moments like that where you look at a prop or a, a miniature, and you think, "My God, look at the detail on this thing!" And I think the gantry, the the you know the the big gantry comes out of it, and the tower and the elevator inside, it's just it's just mind blowing. And I think what really sells it is how slow it moves away from the the speep. Yes, and it the scale. Yeah. Like this movie has like an incredible sense of scale to it in all, you know, all of its big special effects moments, but scale works with, uh, you know, it works better when, when, when what you're looking at is so detailed that you totally believe that it's there, that it's real and that it, it it's that detailed. And you have to and move it that, slow yeah. enough because if not, then mm-hmm. it looks like a little toy. You have to act yes. like it's, it's something that's big. So you have to move it like something that's big and they really got you, that yeah. down perfectly they they really did they moved it so slow and it looks like it's going about the right speed that you'd expect something that size to go while you're watching the movie on set it probably moved so painfully slow unless it's i mean it's it's possible that they shot it at a higher frame rate like they did with the kaiju to make it slow it down like not yeah Mm -hmm. not slow-mo but just to give it a bigger sense of scale by cranking the camera a little bit differently. It's, it's yep. possible they did that. I couldn't really tell, but whatever they did, it looks gigantic and the detail on it sells the illusion 200%. It's amazing. Then we get our wonderful little gravity uh, scene in, yeah. in, in the spaceship. And, and we have this actor and, and he was in Gorath as well when he's, yes. when he's having all these, he has two little mishaps once <laughs> after they get out of the ship and then once on the ship after it's taken off. So he, they, they're like, yeah, gravity's different. You have to remember that. And he's like, oh, yeah. I mean, th- that's really <laughs> Sekizawan. That was a nice – it's one of the one of the moments in this film that did feel like him because the rest of it is – it doesn't really nec- – and this is very early on in his screenwriting career. I mean, at this point at Toho, in terms of his visual effects stuff, he did – he'd done Varan. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And there's like Varan, you watch it, you can see the Sekizawa touches in the characters. You know, you can see them. They're not nearly as developed as they would be just, if, you know, three years later in Mothra, for crying out loud. I mean, three years. Mm-hmm. And like, it, it's crazy to see the differences. And in, in Battle in Outer Space, the characters are very, very thin. But that moment, like the two moments where he stands up and boop, he's up on the ceiling and they have to pull him down and they're all laughing about it. And then he, he jumps over the car on the moon. That's, that's Sekizawa. You can feel his, mm-hmm. his handprint on this film. And it's a lot more subtle than I think most other films that he wrote. It's no King Kong um, versus Godzilla. No, it's no King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, definitely not. But it's, it's definitely like that moment of levity is needed because the, this film is actually very, very serious. Yeah. And again, it, it, it's like a, as originally conceived, it was supposed to be 
basically a war movie. You know, it was written as a straight war movie. It's not really a, I mean, hard pressed to watch it and think, yeah, I'm watching a, a war movie now. But it was, you know, it needed its moments of levity. You know, playing with gravity is a definitely a fun way to have levity. Playing with gravity and making it funny in a more tense moment or in a more tense movie pops up in a lot of science fiction films from this period, even on science fiction television. I mean, there's a the the pilot of Lost in Space has a great moment where the gravity they have to turn the gravity off, and they're all floating around, and that was that was 1965. And that was that was a few years later, but it was definitely something that would that happens because you know what? Darn it, people floating around it, it's it's funny. <laughs> Moonraker. It's yeah, moon yeah Moonraker. <laughs> One word, Moonraker. <laughs> yep. Nothing more needs to be said. Nothing more needs to be said. <laughs> the, so after they've launched, they come across the pieces of this space station JSS-3 that they were left along with a body floating in space, and they watch it sort of float yeah. past them. The striking moment of that, and Ifakube's music in this scene really drives home the drama because it's a it's a false flag. Yeah. Because the music is dramatic, and you think something's coming, and they all get ready, battle stations... And what is it? It's it's debris from a with a, a a corpse floating in in there, and the music suddenly dies down and turns into this very sad, recalling Godzilla on the ocean floor piece from the end of the original Godzilla a little bit, and the da 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 moment mm-hmm. where it kind of gets very very mournful, and at that moment it it is a war film. Yeah, and it's a in that moment it was. It's a very striking moment, and every time I, it never fails to actually deeply affect me. Every time I see it, you know it's coming, and then you see this little body uh, out there, and they they're very you know reverent, and they bow their heads and say a prayer. Every single time I see it, it it's affecting, and then it, it's followed up with that shot of the Earth getting farther away, and you think, oh God, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is not going to be easy. Yeah. You know, they're, they're leaving, they're not even on earth anymore. They're in enemy territory now and there's nothing they can, might not be anything they can do. Yeah. A lot of, you know, you never know. And the very, very vulnerable, vulnerable moment. Yeah. And our astronauts have a prayer sort of for their deceased comrade. Mahanda's well-known anti-war sentiments are influencing this scene big time. Very much so. Honda's experience in the period, in the Imperial army. And that made mm-hmm. him reflect upon the sadness of war. There's definitely that going on. This is a Honda film after all. And yes, mind controlled Iwamura. He goes down to the engineering room and he's told to destroy the heat ray gun because that's a big deal. And then, cause that's viewed as one of the biggest threats by the, by the aliens. Yeah. His expressions are probably the best when he's, when he's doing that part of the movie and not everyone can do that kind of a job. If you didn't know what expressions to display, then this would be really hard to do. And it's like, he can't fight it, but he wants to. And then then as soon as it's cut off, he's able to go back to normal. But yeah, uh, I still get a kick of Tsuchiya hitting the guy over the head with the wrench and his helmet's on and he's instantly knocked out. (laughs) <laughs> it feels like it's a, ni- it may, a very 1940s yeah. thing to do. Yeah, I feel like to like you know. Do you think that was funny the, on purpose? Creep. <laughs> what was that now? Do you think this was funny on purpose? Him doing that. I. That's a good question. It's very possible because they didn't want to make it, it violent. It, this is yeah, very it's possible that it was. It's. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure if they were going for going for funny, but there hadn't been a 
one of those moments of levity in the film mm-hmm. at that point for a, a few minutes. It had been a while since there was something. It's possible it might have been for laughs, but I every time I see the scene, I just like start getting a headache because I'm like it's it looks funny. It's just like bonk, and you hear that sound. But then I think, yeah, it's all fun and games until you actually get hit in the head with a wrench. <laughs> like, and it ouch. reminds me of Gator and the Three Headed Monster when that when that happens. Actually, the yeah, hit over that's the a head good with a wrench and. He expresses right. this real amount of pain, yeah. When he when he does it, but it's kind of funny when the, when that when that happens. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about in this movie regarding the vehicles. Oh, very much. Especially, so. I would say car one and car two, and then the, I love the those spips, things. Definitely, car one and car two. That is pretty amazing. The, the, the air the air cushion feature. Yeah. On the on those that is really. Pretty cool. I like it. It's it's really really fascinating. It's fu- fascinating to watch them move across the Martian landscape because they're so unusually shaped and colored for the terrain. They pop out, and uh, the the vehicles in this film and a lot of the the tech came from the mind of um, a guy named Shigeru Kamatsuzaki, who was a uh, he was an he was an engineer, and he knew how to make these things look fantastical, but also give them a functionality yeah. where you could look at them and you didn't just see something pretty. And he designed all kinds of fantastical equipment and 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 vehicles and um, weapons for the Toho films during the Golden Age. Probably his most famous creation is Atragon, is the Gotengo, mm-hmm. um, which came about four years after this film came out. His stamp is all over this film. Uh, Kamatsuzaki was responsible for making the Speeps look like you're kind of a general kind of rockety shape, but also make them unique. And the, uh, all the, the buttons and knobs on the insides came from him. The, the, the UFOs came from him, but my favorite, my favorite is definitely the cars because they, uh, they're, they're so, they're so interesting looking. And they're the first time I saw it, my first thought was, Oh, it's cute. Look at that cute little car. <laughs> they're, they've got little noses, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're adorable. But they also they they look functional. They don't look like goofy, at least not to me. They don't look like goofy like you know B budget vehicles. No, and it's the not just something had, silly looking. It, 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 no, they, no, they and they look like transports. Yeah. Like they're actual. They just, do. Th- there's a lot yeah. of functionality, and th- there's between the speeps and the cars and all the other technology. There's continuity, like stylistic continuity. That yes. all of this stuff is part of the same universe. It isn't just this weird thing over here and then another weird thing that looks totally different and, and just just throwing stuff at us haphazardly. There there was a lot of thought put into this and the uh, and especially the the ships too, the, the the space the actual space planes that are towards the end of the movie. The, all of Absolutely. it all of it goes together. It all feels like it it fits and like that's Sometimes you don't even think of that when you're watching the film, but when you think about it later, you're like, man, it really all feels like you, you kind of forget how important that is to have a sense of design continuity between, you know, Spaceship One and Spaceship Two, and then the cars, and then this and that. It it, it literally does all look like it came out of like the same plant, you know, during the same era. It's really effective. I mean, even their spacesuits look like the spacesuits match the ships. Yeah, you know the their weapons match the ships, and it's all uh, it all comes together to form a really uniquely 
science fiction visual spectacle. I mean, God knows how many spaceship movies came out in the 1950s. And um, I mean, most of them were in black and white. And then, you know, the, the even the color ones, not all of them are as visually distinctive or interesting, I think, as Battle in Outer Space. And there are a lot, like, Forbidden Planet is an exception to that, of course, because Forbidden Planet is... Off just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's just gorgeous to look at, but, um, there's, you know, like battle not space does that kind of similar thing where it's colorful without being fantastic and it's exotic without being unrealistic. And that's a, that's a fine line to walk, especially when you're in charge of designing, you know, maybe five or six different kinds of vehicles or weapons for one film you want it to look like it'll work, but you also want it to look interesting. I and mean, it's amazing. Like, I mean, we're talking a film that's, again, almost 60 years old here. It's just amazing how much creative energy was put into just, like, just the car. Just designing the cars. And the, the air cushion, like you mentioned before, is a great feature. And they actually did that by spraying water vapor out of the bottoms of the props. Yes, I guess Which that I thought too. was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. was like, wait a minute, how, did they, how yeah. did they, oh, okay, yeah, there's a little spray thing on the bottom. Yeah. Very, and yeah. That's and nice. I mean, that's simple, but it, it looks exactly the way you think it would look. Yeah, makes, exactly. Because you want it to be visual rather than just having it be invisible air that's coming exactly. out of the bottom. Because then it's yeah. kind of taking a little bit of a, a little bit of fun out of it, I guess. I think, I think it, so. Because you want to be able to see this stuff happening and actually exactly. show everybody. Oh, yeah. The part about the aliens coming into the cave and mobbing Etsuko. Yeah. Yeah, these are our aliens this time around. A little different from the Mysterians. A little the, different. Yeah, they're these little, sort of little, little bit. diminutive... And their helmets sort of make them look like they have faces that look like a rat or something. They do. They, they, they look, look like little rat-like. face helmets. Yeah. Yeah, and then they make the—they're making this noise that was used uh, for the Meganula from exactly, Rodan. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they're using yeah. that uh, sound effect. It's more about the invasion than it is about the aliens. I guess would be the yeah. way that and I'd this, describe it. This film could have gotten away with not showing the alien, right? You know, the, without showing what they looked like. Um, but again. Many sci-fi films from this period fell into that kind of trap of what we have to show it. Uh, It came from outer space from Universal had the same thing where they filmed the almost they filmed pretty much the entire movie and you didn't see the alien. And then at the end, um, Universal's execs basically said, we have to show the alien or no one's going to come see this movie. And so they built this big old prop and it was a creepy looking alien, but it's not nearly as creepy as what's in your own mind. So they, they, you know, I think monster loving kids everywhere were happy. They showed the alien in that film, but it didn't, they didn't need to. And this film didn't necessarily need to show the aliens, but you know, as a lover of strange creatures and alien designs and weird spacesuits and things like that, viewers liked, you know, like you like to see that stuff. Right. They, they, mm-hmm. they were originally going to be a lot more exotic. The original plan for the Natal aliens was to have them and their tech be very insect-like. They were supposed to be very, uh, very much like bugs, humanoid bugs. And uh, they were going to have their own cars, their own kind of all-terrain vehicles that looked like pill bugs. Instead of the saucers, uh, yeah. Instead of the saucers. But ultimately, just just for budget reasons, I mean, the budget on this thing was already pretty 
pretty darn big and they used it, you know, very wisely, I think. But in the end, they decided that they were still going to show the aliens, but they they simplify them into being these diminutive uh, suited um, space suited beings. I think it works in a, in a strange way. They almost remind me of the aliens when you finally see them in uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Ray Harryhausen's film, right? Where they you see you most of the story is about the saucers. It's about the tech, and you're fighting against this faceless enemy. But they decided again, we need to show the aliens. So they had these aliens in these big clunky. They almost look like the Michelin tire guy in yeah. these big suits. Who doesn't like actually seeing the alien? But it's not nearly as creepy as it would have been otherwise. And it's, it's interesting trying to take the diminutive little squeaky aliens and then trying to combine it with the the creepy voice that speaks to Iwamura in his brain. And you're kind of thinking, that little guy yeah. made that sound? So it's, you know, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. And again, I don't, it doesn't hurt the film at all. But it's definitely, it's interesting to think big, scary, you know, faceless alien. And then you got these little guys just kind of squeaking, running around. Yeah. But I love those little aliens. Yeah, and Katsumiya saves Etsuko from them, and then he kills them all off, like with one fell swoop. Yeah, he just he just zaps them all down, and down they go. Yeah, I don't know. Easily. I might have to if they were doing that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I probably would have get off my girl. That's not nice. Yeah. In in the in the original story, as it was written, the their diminutive little nature was, uh, and this is a, another sci-fi trope. They become so reliant on technology that their bodies were these tiny little weak things, you know. And that's not communicated in the final script at all. You know, they can just they just kind of stand around you and grab you, you know, when they don't have their technology to back them up. So it's an interesting theme, and it's it's not in the final script in any way, but you can kind of extrapolate it by watching it. This base that is on the moon is quite impressive. And the, I think so. And the center of the base comes out and it rotates. And I, I love the overall design and having the ships enter it and exit it as this is That's going my on. Favorite, that, that, yeah. that adds to the scale, you know, trying to figure out the scale of what this, how big this thing is. And it's actually pretty yeah. big. And it's similar to the one from the Mysterians on a base level. You know, there's something, there's a, there's a center of it and it's rotating and there's this voice coming out of it, yelling at you. <laughs> this on, on the moon, this moon base for this movie though, is it's obviously different enough. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's really cool though. I like it. I, the ray that comes out of it is pretty impressive. That light blue ray, the beam that comes out of it. It's really the pretty effects to look of at. It, the effects of it missing and them destroying all of the the mountains on the moon, that's a nice effect too with, with uh, the yeah. cutting and then all of the, the mountain it just explodes out in all these little pieces. It looks very nice. It does. And that was hard to do back then because, again, all those, all those lasers were hand animated uh-huh. and they had to time them with the the line, the little explosive line that would cut into the into the hill and make sure that that beam hit where it was. And if you watch the movie, there's there's one scene where the beam goes in one direction and then the explosion goes in the opposite direction. But <laughs> it was it was it was one tiny little moment, and you got to really be looking for it. And even then, it doesn't take away from the movie at all. It's just a little little special effects moment where you're like, you can feel the 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 hands of the people doing this and the 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 kind of the tediousness that comes with uh, trying mm-hmm. to make this imagery. Yeah. And, the, and it's fascinating. Yeah. And the Mysterians, there was one of the part where the uh, Markelite fops, uh, the ray hits the dome and then like the other side of the dome blows up. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, yeah, that was a, oops. yeah, that was a thing, but it, it's sort of oops. like that. 
when we see Irum Iwamura shooting at the UFOs when they appear, that's pretty awesome. Like he's just there with that's one of those cool guns moment. and he's just taking them out. And he says he's better now and that he'll stay to defend them as they escape. So he sacrifices himself for their safety to repay the debt of having destroyed one of the two rockets and all the trouble that exactly. he caused while under alien control. Exactly. They really nailed the mood and the atmosphere to make the audience think about that without making they, it yeah. without making it this 10 minute long drawn out scene. I'm going to go kill myself now. You know, like no, yeah. don't do it. I yeah. totally instead have of, to. Instead of just getting <laughs> extremely internalized, instead we're we're doing just enough yes. to to drive the point home without hitting us over the head. Exactly. And the, again, this film didn't have characters that were fleshed out enough to really like do a 10 minute long hit you over the head moment. But Iwamura being the most fleshed out of them all, uh, his death does affect the viewer in a, in a way. And it's done, it's done really, really effectively with the, and it works very well in, in tandem with the amount of characterization that was supplied to the characters before that. It's a great moment. And it's again, Ishiro Honda isms. You've got the character who sacrifices himself a la Sarazawa. And I mean, there's not a lot of parallels to be made there, but Honda's films have a tendency to have a character sacrifice themselves for the sake of others and or the world. Um, Namikawa and Monster Zero. I just mentioned Sarazawa. Uh, Katsura in Terror of Mechagodzilla. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a thing. It's amazing, like, and again, with the amount of characterization that, that is present in this film, that when you see Iwamura doing this thing, you're you're still like oh no <laughs> you know don't don't die he's cool yeah you have you feel you feel the emotion of it and you you don't want him to go but you know that it has to happen you know he takes out more of the flying saucers single-handedly than either of the teams did while piloting their their cars yeah you know he he takes out like he takes out a bunch of them and then again at the end the the two fly over the ridge and zap him and he disappears and that's how that ends his sacrifice one of the characters on the ship says it in the next scene is like you know we can't bring him back but now we can keep fighting and he says it very sadly you know not just because his friend is gone but because the fighting is still going to have to continue and that's really not worth celebrating you know what i mean so right, which also makes it like a, a war movie very much so, yeah. There's a mm-hmm. little echoes of a legitimate war movie inside of this film that really feels more like a, a big epic sci-fi film, which which it is. But, I mean, the film's literally war in space in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. That's the title. So it's it's it doesn't come across as a straight-up war film. But in a lot of ways, that's, that's very much the story they were telling. And echoes of that survive enough to make the moments where you think to yourself, yeah, this is a war movie. It makes them very effective, those moments. So Iwamura's death definitely is a sad, sad part. And so then they get home, and what's the result of all of this? The world unites against an outside invasion instead of being against each other. And this is this grassroots popular sentiment everywhere that says we need to defend ourselves, we need to declare war on aggressive invaders, and then we essentially need to militarize the crap out of the space program <laughs> and, then spend, and then spend a lot of money and resources to build up the space military. Forget diplomacy. We're not messing around. We're building all these rocket launching sites in Siberia and northern Texas. And we're just going to we're going to get all this done now. It's, it's very resolute. And at the same time, I think it'd be 
kind of scary, uh, even though you're the, the part about the whole world uniting is great, but obviously you're up against a lot. You have to prepare for an alien invasion to occur, and you have to exactly. fight it off somehow. Yeah, it's a big it's a big moment, and again, it's it is pure Honda. Absolutely, the the, the man like this movie. Like when you look at his his filmography, especially the the Brotherhood of Man filmography, where he really drives that point home, it's done subtly and effectively in films like Mothra versus Godzilla. It's done, uh, you know, it's done um, a, on a bigger scale and effectively in like the Mysterians and Gorath and films like that and other ones here and there. And then of course it kind of turns into the the Brotherhood of Monsters uh, when you get yeah. to Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. But this film, for my money, is the ultimate in Ishiro Honda basically proclaiming his hopes for a world united. I don't think it gets much more in your face than this film. Right. The, uh, the, the giant scenes of all these people... Um, protesting in multiple languages and at the beginning of the film and again at the end briefly the decisions being made in a giant un style meeting place this is we're peeking into honda's soul here this is what he wanted the united nations the world to be like he this is what he was hoping would happen i think that honestly the united nations as it appears in this film is what he wanted and I think what most people kind of wanted when the United Nations became a thing. This there was is a lot people, of hope at the beginning, yeah. Lots of hope. And, I mean, the United Nations had been around for a while by the time 1959 rolled around. But, again, that feeling of we can still – there's still potential in this idea of a United Nations. I mean, it's called the United Nations. Shouldn't we be able to put these these – differences aside and erase borders for the greater good of mankind, the brotherhood of man. And um, in Honda's, uh, you know, fantasy worlds and, you know, his, even his science fiction fantasy worlds, this is something that's a given. This is something that's going to happen. And it really, and again, it's been talked about it in more depth in, you know, many, many, many other places before. But for my money, this is the epitome of Honda's filmic vision of what wh- what kind of world he wanted to see it's very effective and it's uh i mean it's it's heavy-handed without feeling like it's kind of like at least for my money that it's smacking you over the head it is kind of smacking you over the head but it's such a good idea and it's such a positive outlook that you can't fault honda for putting it in the film to the degree that he put it in no the heavy-handedness of saying this thing is coming we have to without blinking, put our differences aside and protect our planet where we mankind live. Not this kind of person lives on this half of the planet and then this person over here and this people. No, we are mankind. We come together. We do what we have to do. And you, again, it's very, this is the strongest of all of his films for me where he delivered that message. And as strong as it is, as heavy handed as it is, um, it never crosses the line into like ham fisted. No, you know, like um, like some people I've used that word pop up for a uh, hetera before Yoshimitsu Bana's Godzilla versus hetera. <laughs> and um, but honest, like and again, the, the with battle in outer space and Honda's very, very uh, optimistic outlook on mankind's future. You can't fault the guy for going there. No, you don't want to fault him for his idealism. There. No, 
No, no, certainly not. Like his, it's it comes through in this film really, really well. And the uh, the again, like right at the end with the people protesting, and Ifakube's music is blaring up, and it makes you want to go fight the aliens while you're watching the movie. It's an effective yeah, it, moment. It it really ramps up the excitement. Actually, prepares you for the final act to the to the movie, which is the, absolutely the, the final uh, part of this movie is fantastic. Uh, it's oh, a, it's so good. It's a tokusatsu extravaganza. It's very impressive. Yes, and, it is. Uh, we have our dog fight in space, which is nice. And it does a good job at realizing, helping us to realize that using all of those lasers as weapons is about as effective and difficult as World War I dog fighting. Yeah. With, with it's, bullets it's, in the yeah. air. You know, like you, because the speeds are, would probably be so high. It would it would be yeah. pretty amazing. Like if we had an actual cockpit view of, of what was going on there, it would be almost impossible to try to hit anything. But it's I think so. Yeah. So it's instead of just like there's this targeting system and then you just press the button and you you know shoot it and it's done. That that probably wouldn't be very easy to do. So so at least no. it wasn't like just oh yeah I destroyed fifty fifty fighters you know or whatever like it's. Like it's yeah, just it, it, super easy. You can tell, like you can tell, it doesn't work like that, man. It's, yeah. There's a lot of World War One dogfight in this this uh, mm-hmm. in this sequence, and it's it's. I mean, it is the it is the battle in outer space of the title, and it's so like when you get to that moment, it pays off in so many ways. The launching alone, if you watch the if you look at the rockets, like the little bits that are holding them down, you know, and then they blast off and the the parts separate. Uh, all done in miniature, just beautiful. And um, and then when you get into space, it's so so cool. And it it uh like and again watching this film as many times as I have, uh, it really makes the case for me that I I honest if George Lucas didn't watch this film before making Star Wars, I'd be shocked. I was I was going to mention that. Uh, yeah, it, it's you can tell. I'd say you can tell. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg, he see, he saw movies uh, like Lost Horizon, and that's what that's what mm-hmm. that's how we got Indiana Jones. There are all kinds of things that great directors in America have seen, whether it's J- Japanese or European films, or there are all kinds of little things. I mean, obviously, then also with uh, George Lucas and The Hidden Fortress. I mean, there you go. Yes. But, George Lucas's yeah. love for Japanese film is mm-hmm. very well, very well documented. And so it's, I've never read anything one way or another that confirmed that he saw this film or took inspiration from it. But looking at just the, the sequences where the camera is facing the pilot uh, and you can see space on either side of them over their shoulder outside and uh, you, you, they have their hel- their helmets on with their visors, and they're they're you know they're saying, "Hey, I'm moving in for the kill." Um, just those scenes alone, and then the the one moment where the guy flinches, and then his ship blows up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm just watching it, thinking, "Stay on target." Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's it is so it's so similar. The way that, that it's filmed, I'd, yeah. The way that it's filmed, like the sequence itself stands, like in let's just say A New Hope for example, let's just say the original Star Wars and Battle in Outer Space, those battles are very different, but when you boil down, boil it down to how it was shot, they're filmed very, very similarly yeah. with two different, entirely different techniques, which is impressive. I mean, we're talking, you know, motion control in 77, and then um, a solid 18 years earlier than that, I mean, the, the, the spaceships are all on wires, and the dynamic movement that you can get out of these things 
it was unbelievable. And it was combined with shots of the insides of the rockets. And it's, it's very Star Wars like. It is very, very Star Wars like. And uh, again, I have no confirmation one way or another that any kind of link between those two, those two films does exist. But knowing Lucas's penchant for uh, loving, loving Japanese film, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> maybe it's the conspiracy theorist in me, but I, I, I see connections there. And um, I think any Star Wars fan who watches Battle in Outer Space would see it too very easily. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely possible. The torpedoes. These space torpedoes, and we've seen these earlier in the movie too, uh, when they were shooting them at the uh, the speeps when they're trying to get to the moon, and they're they're these yeah. sort of uh, football shaped uh, missiles. In this attack, you know the mothership is there, and then they're sort of they, the way that they carry them is they sort of levitate the the torpedoes along with them as they're flying, like they're not even inside yeah. the ship. It's actually something that they're carrying on the outside. But there are two of these torpedoes at the end, and uh, one of them hits the Golden Gate Bridge, and one of them hits New York City. In Manhattan, it looks like in the middle of Midtown. Both of those special effects sequences are fantastic. I especially like the bridge, because the bridge falls apart in the absolute most right way possible. It looks they nailed so it. good. Yeah. yeah, There's no the way that you could do that again off. and have it look differently, and it would and not be able to you wouldn't be able to get to the original one. Like it just no. is perfect. No. It looks it so It was real. really, really good. I'm actually shocked that um, those moments never wound up as stock footage in like 70s Godzilla Seriously. films because of all yeah. that. I've always wondered about that. Like some of those shots are just amazing. I mean, footage from Rodan and the Mysterians ended up in 70s Godzilla films, grainy in a different uh, aspect ratio. Yeah. But they didn't, you know, this, this movie is full, beautiful color Toho scope. And I find it amazing that they didn't at least use a, a couple of snippets of some of these moments in, uh, in, in the film, uh, especially the, like you said, the bridge with the little cars that are driving and yeah, then the they flip and fall crazy. off and it's, they're tiny. I don't know how they did it. It's, it's, it's amazing. I love watching these films and thinking, my God, how did they like, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, how did they do this? And it's all hand manufactured and it's got a, a weight to it and a realisticness to it that if you tried to do it with, uh, with CG today, and I mean, God knows how many times the Golden Gate Bridge has been destroyed in film or similar bridges. I mean, just a few years earlier, Harryhausen's giant octopus pulled it down. Oh, and, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It was so it had a it has had a history. I find it, which is interesting because they had to they had to get those shot in. Um, it came from beneath the sea with the giant octopus. They they had to get those shots in secret. Because the um, the city fathers in San Francisco were uh, worried that if the bridge was depicted being torn down by an octopus, and it was recently opened at that point, if it had um, the audiences saw it being torn down by an octopus, they'd have they wouldn't think it was a safe bridge. They would have <laughs> questions about like like and Harryhausen used to laugh about this in interviews because he would say. Well, we, we put a camera into the back of a bread truck and drove back and forth to get the, the plates for the animation, and we took them back, and I animated the octopus, and uh, the city fathers never complained, and uh, he always used to say, I doubt we ever scared anybody into thinking that the Golden Gate Bridge was unsafe should an octopus show up and try to pull it down. 
<laughs> I, I I always think of that when I see uh, Battle Ladder Space because I wonder, like, what if, would these same people say, no, you can't film there because people might be scared that a, an alien torpedo might hit it and blow it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're but really a, trying to a, cover their bases a little bit too much. Uh, a little the, too much. The realm yeah, of I mean, possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> And again, that <laughs> that bridge has been in so many movies now that I, I think they gave up on it pretty quick. One but, of my um, favorites is always, the original Superman from 1978. Oh, yes. It just looks so good, too. But, uh, yeah, it did look good. Destroy All Monsters, actually. We keep going back to this, but the, the, the part where they show all the cars driving in Tokyo and everything before that scene oh, yeah. happens glorious uh, mm-hmm. attack on Tokyo occurs. Oh, yes. But, uh, that, oh, yes. That, that was also just absolute pinnacle of detail getting all the cars moving and just having all this stuff going on at the same time is just very incredible but and the new york York part's great too though going just going right into manhattan and causing all that destruction oh yeah then we get the mother of all destruction and that's when the mothership actually goes down to tokyo and just starts absolute zeroing everything and tearing it apart (laughs) into pieces and including the, the including that movie theater, which I'm yeah which I, yeah they went you, after them. I'm pretty sure that the movie theater had to have been one of the places that they showed this movie. I I'm sure I'm absolutely I'm, sure. I the, bet uh, more likely yeah. than not. Yeah, and and then I suppose well if you're in this in that exact theater and you're watching this movie, you're like, oh wow, it just destroyed the theater that we're in. Like it's just, <laughs> I I have never been to a movie theater and had that happen. It would be pretty cool if it did though. Just be like, oh. <laughs> oh, we're in there. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> the something something similar did happen with the original Godzilla, Godzilla yeah. when the the, <laughs> the monster smacks the Nichigeki theater with its tail, and apparently there were some people that kind of wigged out in the theater when that was shown in '54. They were like, "Oh my God, what's yeah. happening?" <laughs> and the 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 closest I it's never happened to me either. The closest I ever got was um when I when I visited uh, Tokyo in 2016 to see Shin Godzilla. We drove through the Aqualine Tunnel that he oh, cracks mm-hmm. through at the beginning and uh, drove over the bridge that he throws. Yeah. <laughs> which is the, the same bridge from 54. Um, and he's just so much bigger now that he doesn't just tear it down. He just throws it. And so we drove over this bridge and underneath the Aqualine, you know, we were watching the movie and then we, we did this and we were like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, that's crazy. And it was it was opening day for the film, too. And it was like, oh, my God. What is going on here? It was it was like surreal. If they if the theater I was seeing the movie in had been destroyed while I was watching it, I don't know like how surreal that would have been because just knowing I had been in the Aqualine and I drove over the bridge and um, I went to see the the Waco building, the famous clock tower right. that Godzilla knocks over, and that gets totally wrecked in Shin Godzilla too. Yes, and um, I had I I just kept having these moments where I was like, my God, I was there like a, a couple hours ago. <laughs> but I've I'd love to be in a theater as the theater's getting destroyed in a movie I'm watching one of these yeah. days because I can only imagine how crazy that would be. But that'd be the, fun. Uh, yeah, it would be fun. It would be fun. The theater and all of those those set pieces that get destroyed are so detailed, especially when you consider that they, they weren't made out of the typical miniature materials at the time. Yeah. And at the beginning of that, of the Tokyo sequence, they show the, like a sort of uh, skyline view, but then they have this mural behind the actual buildings. Then they have the mural behind them showing way, 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 way more buildings behind that. 
but it, yeah. it looks so good that just seeing it for that long, you almost couldn't tell. It, it looked that good. No, yeah. And that's that's the effectiveness of a um, a truly good matte painting. Yeah, is that it's used exactly where, how, and for how long it needs to be to make the illusion effective, and then it it goes away. Like the it, towards the beginning of the film with the big the the earth the painting of the earth and it's that great shot it's the horizon line as it's starting to shrink and you yes. can still you can still see the country yeah. that painting is on screen for seconds and it's beautiful and then it goes away and you don't see it again the the Tokyo skyline in this is is beautiful as well and I I I think it was probably done that way to um a to make the city look big b to save money and c because of the the uh, the fans that they used on set because they did actually blow those buildings straight up with compressed air there's really no other way you could do that no yeah, there's it's, it's been it's it's been erroneously reported before that they they built the sets upside down and then destroyed them with wires and pulled it no no that's <laughs> that's, that's not, that's what not I how saw. that works <laughs> Nope. No, I think anybody who's actually seen the film knows that is super not how they did it. Yeah. You know, like so much, there's been so much misinformation out there, you know, ever since these films first came out that sometimes things just get repeated. And I mean, God knows there are people that still think Kong kicked Godzilla's butt in 62, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, or, or, um, or Godzilla kicked Kong's butt in the Japanese version. And, you know, it, that, that, right, that thing that is thing, still, yeah. it's still, a, it's still a rumor that people buy. It's crazy, but yeah, when you watch this film, it's that that entire that that destruction is amazing, and the the way that they ended up doing it, which is the the one time that the the awful and it, again talking about rumors, the uh, <laughs> trigger warning cardboard buildings, uh-huh. <laughs> which every time I hear that, I just want to like smack my head against a wall. I can tell you two times in Tokusatsu history that I know where cardboard was used. The other being Ultraman Powered in the early 90s, which was shot in America. And the Japanese guys showed up and they were like, what are you doing? Why are these buildings cardboard? And they were like, well, we thought that's how it was done. And the Japanese guys had to basically kick the American special effects team out and be like, okay, this is insulting. This is how it's actually done. They rolled up their sleeves and built actual buildings, but they had to film with the buildings that they had. So if you watch the first episode of the uh, Ultraman powered, the buildings just look like garbage, mm-hmm. but um, that wasn't the fault of anybody from Japan doing these effects. The only time in an actual Japanese production that I'm aware of that I know cardboard was definitely used was this scene because you can't blow heavy plaster and, you know, little tiny bits of masonry up with the fan. That's just not going to happen. So they use paper thin, uh, you know, cardboard and wafers to uh, construct the buildings. And the fact that you can watch these scenes and your first thought isn't, oh, it's cardboard. Like the, the buildings look like normal, regular mm-hmm. miniature sets. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that they did use cardboard and it looked that good, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like super duper amazing. And, uh, the the matting in of the little guys flailing as they shoot up into the sky and putting it all together just looked amazing. If and you, it's, and it's if you were on ground level, ending. you'd be terrified. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's yeah. It, it, now it's, if they if they did that with CGI, you'd see how truly absolutely frightening that would be to experience that, or even to see it from a distance. That would, yeah, because it'd just be catastrophic the amount of damage done in such a small amount of time. And it, the fact that it was 
it I like I like movie like movies and things like in uh, disaster films where you're basically watching a city almost destroying itself. Rodan did a similar a similar thing where all Rodan had to do in that first fifty six film was fly yeah. over the buildings and the buildings tore themselves down. Human infrastructure tore itself down, and uh, the aliens don't have to do much else other than activate zero you know zero gravity with their absolute zero cannon and up go the buildings in little chunks. It's terrifying. There are a lot of movies that are related to this that happened after this, because this is pretty early for a movie like this to occur Yeah, you know, with, the, with this kind of a story and uh, let alone the effects. But there, I've seen plenty of movies since this. And then, and then there's movies like Armageddon. This is mm-hmm. sort of similar to, to this because our Armageddon, quite a bit of that was about focused on exactly. action and it's focused on the events. And that's yeah, how a lot you were, of disaster you were given your movies own, are. Yeah. But, yeah, you were given your ensemble group of characters, and you didn't really know them that well. But they were your excuse to get to the to the set pieces, to the action. You, you can tell that this got the ball rolling in in many respects for what what people expect and what you sort of want to see in a story like this. Exactly. There there weren't. I mean, space movies were coming out left and right at this time, but none of them, very few of them, had a the kind of uh, epic scale and a sense of seriousness and the budget and the scope that this film was going for. Um, the, the two biggest ones that I can think of are, as we've mentioned before, Destination Moon from George Powell and um, Forbidden Planet. The, I mean, other than that, most other stories like this were very, very low budget. I'm thinking something like the uh, Rocky Jones Space Ranger television <laughs> series from the yeah. from the 50s, which famously got turned into two Mystery Science Theater movies. Mm-hmm. I, I love that stuff because yeah, it's, it's basically good. like they copied and pasted the rockets. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're fun to watch. I love me a good rocket ship movie, but... And then you wonder, very what could they have them, done if they had a really good budget? Yes. And then, <laughs> what and then could finally they have that done nagging indeed. feeling in your head is erased because mm-hmm. you get to see this. But yeah. Yeah. And exactly. It's like, what would, what would this look like on a budget? Oh, it's battle in outer space. You know, like that's, if somebody said, we're going to take the rocket ship seriously, we're going to take the science seriously, then you get something very much like uh, Destination Moon or Battle in Outer Space. George Powell set out to do Destination Moon to do something that was very, very plausible from the mid-50s point of view. And so in that respect, it's very similar to Battle in Outer Space. But um, Battle in Outer Space has the added benefit of like the full, you know, and again, it's not fantasy, as much fantasy as the Mysterians would have been. But there's just something very unique about the way that Battle in Outer Space was handled with the full, the, the, the colors, uh, the cars with their, you know, the, the gold, the yellow, you know, the yellow and the red cars. Like that's something mm-hmm. that's very, very exotic and cool, but it still looked like it had a function and it's something that could have been designed. I'm sure that when this film came out, people were probably saying, oh, Battle in Outer Space ripped off Destination Moon. But it's it's it couldn't be farther from the from the case. This is not something. And when I watch Battle in Outer Space, I don't think Destination Moon when I watch it. You know, I don't no. think this is a response to that. I think like we when we were talking about the three treasures, you know, you can watch it and it's in the back of your mind. Well, this is this is a response to Ten Commandments, which it was. It still feels like its own thing. Battle in Outer Space feels even more like its own thing. It doesn't feel like it was trying to copy anybody else. It doesn't feel like it was trying to cash in on anything else. 
it is its own very, very cool kind of an experiment because it took the ideas and the concepts and the talent, the skills that had made 1954 up through 1959 so profitable for you know special effects films. And they were continuing to refine things. And they took the elements that made Godzilla and Rodan and Varan and the Mysterians work so well, and they did a space opera. You know, they did a war film in space. You know, at the end of the day, it's in that way, it's not very comparable to a lot of films. It has elements that are definitely shared, but it it, kind of it stands alone very nicely. I think it feels like an end point. It's like the logical end to a whole bunch of different things that had been done up to that point, which I guess it doesn't make this movie experimental as much as it does. It just does everything well. And puts everything I, together yeah. for the first time. Like all, all, everything's all working so nicely in concert with everything else. This is this is a firing on all cylinders movie for sure. Mm-hmm. And I I mentioned it in the our three treasures episode, where if you look at just the let's isolate just the optical effects from the Mysterians, they're beautiful, but they're not as refined as you might get in a later film from the, you know, even in battle and outer space and going on upwards from there, the lasers and the, the blasts and the fires come, you know, coming out of the rockets when it was optical instead of an actual fire on set, things like that. That was nine. 1957, 1959, two years later, it feels like the more experimental effects in the Mysterians, because before that they hadn't really done optical, they had done optical lasers and Mogera shooting lights, bolts of energy out of its eyes Two years later, Battle in Outer Space feels like it was made by absolute pros, which it was. And the Mysterians was made by, they were made by pros too. But in that amount of time, they had they had refined what they were doing and they were firing on all cylinders. Ifakube's music is great. The effects are just outstanding. And Ifakube is awesome in the Mysterians and the effects are wonderful in the Mysterians as well. But in that two years, you can feel that a change has happened. And by the time you get to battle in outer space, it's, it looks like you're watching something that's been made by a team that's been doing this for like a decade or two. And even like 10 years after this, yeah. not much had technologically changed with the things you could use no, to yeah. make a movie like this. The tools were pretty still much at there. Their point. Yeah. And so yeah. this was a lot of the time it was, this could have been 10 years ahead of his time because a lot of stuff after this wasn't as good as this. It's true. They they and of course a lot of that was down to the the changing of the Japanese film landscape and you know shifts behind the scenes and such. But yeah, eleven really, years Battle after Matters, this, we're in trouble. Yeah. But yeah, we're, we start yeah we started getting in big trouble. But they had the opportunity to do it in 1959 and really do it well and just create something remarkably unique. And really, a lot of those effects didn't get refined that much further. Um, going forward. I mean, there's definitely improvements here and there, but I don't think like spaceships, for example, like the speeps, I don't think that rocket ships going forward looked any better than they did in battle in outer space. I mean, they looked just as good in the best case cases, like all the, the moonlight SY three, for example, from destroy all monsters Mm -hmm. is gorgeous. It's on par with battle in outer space. It is the spaceship P one from monster zero on par, not better, certainly not worse. But yeah. it's 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 about at the right at about at that same level, and it's you know it's it's crazy to think that they like the tokusatsu as a genre as we know it 
you know, it, it, they would experimented with it before, but as we know, it launched in 54 and, you know, just half a decade later, they had already done so much and they'd perfected so much. And, you know, these things would continue to be worked on and tweaked as it went along. But in five years, an entire genre's worth of special effects techniques had been pretty much brought to their peak. That's amazing. And it sort of explains the stagnation of the 70s later, too. It's sort of like we don't have anything new to to mm-hmm. use, really. It's just more of the same. Obviously, Battle in Outer Space, The Mysterians, movies like this, that was a lot of man hours and time and just oh, yes. detail. And the the detail is the, the aspect that I think is if you start to get tired, the, the detail is what goes first. And, and all of this extreme good amount of uh, energy that everybody had. Yeah, and again, that, that's very, very true, where you just have, you know, the details start to go, and that's how you get movies, like, we'll, we'll take the, like, definitely the 70s Godzilla films as examples, where you get remarkably fun, entertaining, uh, wonderful movies, but they don't have the care put into them that the earlier ones did. And that doesn't make them bad movies, it just makes them different. They're of a different, they're of a different era. And uh, I, you know, I love those films to death. But when you look at the effects for, you know, I'll just I'll pull Megalon out of thin air, and then you you go back to Battle in Outer Space. We're talking about a, a movie, two movies that are separated by nearly a decade and a half, and it's clear to see which one has the more sophisticated effects, which is, you know, not surprising considering Megalon took most of its effects from other movies. <laughs> It's a, you know, it took it took the more the more detailed ones, the buildings being destroyed. You know, they didn't film they filmed they filmed the dam blowing up, but you know everything else was from Ghidorah the Threaded Monster, Monster Zero, all the monsters. They, they took that stuff, which was still from the peak, and uh, they they spliced it in. It's amazing just to think that that much happened that quickly, and then from there it was it plateaued. And then it started to go down. It went very, very quick. That concludes part two. And now I'll move on to the related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. And the topic I chose for this episode is the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. I chose this topic because this was what was going on when the film was released. Japan wasn't much of a player in the space race at this time, but the U.S. and the Soviet Union were the big two for a very long period of time. What I'll do first is I'll describe a sort of overview of what's going on, and then I will go into the specifics of the space race, basically between 1957 and 1969. So this is the race to put a man on the moon. A lot of the politics in the space program started with John Kennedy. Reasons for why Kennedy did this include a lot of things. The missile gap with Russia, which is the arms race. And this was an arms race for both ICBMs and the rocket propulsion technology that delivered them. The Bay of Pigs debacle and failure it made uh, the president look incompetent. It was quite a big failure. It was badly executed. Also, the Soviet Union launching Sputnik and the Yuri Gagarin flight in 1961. And this made the U.S. perceive that they were behind in the space race, which they were. 
And the Sputnik actually caused the Sputnik crisis in 1957 because it showed just how drastically America was behind at the time. So in other words, winning the space race means winning a battle of perception. If you win the space race, then that equals superior military power. It's looked at as the ultimate extra aspect of technological achievement. It's also more influence over the third world and the non-aligned countries by achieving all of these goals, rather than the other side doing it. It's sort of like, see, we did this? Yeah, we're stronger than they are. And then see who did this first? We're smarter than they are. We have a bigger doomsday bomb than them? Well, that matters. And that's why the arms race happened. The big main idea here is prestige and international prestige. The U.S. had Western Europe and the Soviet Union had Eastern Europe. Many other countries were not allied with either side, but the Cold War created pressure for them to take sides. So perception was everything. President Kennedy said that we needed to go to the moon first, and he raised the budget of the space program significantly. There was even some people wondering in America if the Soviets would change their behavior if we beat them to the moon. Because the perceptions battle would be lost by them, and so how much mileage do you get out of perceptions? Well, it couldn't hurt to try. So there's international politics all surrounding the space program. The Cold War, the arms race, technological superiority race, prestige is at stake. The space race was a product of the environment at the time. The height of the Cold War was in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and again in 1983, which uh, a lot of the events uh, regarding NATO and uh, all these other things that occurred, and that was the backdrop for the 1984 return of Godzilla. And again, well, right now, too, we're having a lot of uh, problems with international tensions. Throughout the space race, the two sides were messing with each other regarding what they were doing until something successful happened. There were many failures as the science got refined, but they would also disguise what a launch was, or they would put out false information. You want to hide the development and tests of this stuff until your big achievement occurs. So in 1957, the launch of Sputnik scared the crap out of the Americans. There is no limit to how important this was, because Sputnik went over the Earth four times at 18,000 miles per hour. The Soviets had done this before. It was an observational tool, but you can put an observation tool over the enemy. That's the point. And when there are two entities vying for dominance, the result is an unstable binary system. In a bipolar world, there are two hegemons, and they violently went around the world from one country to another country, having all of these proxy battles. Well, this has continued to this day. If they win, you lose. It's a zero-sum game. Every time you lose, you lose prestige. And by the way, everyone else on Earth is watching and keeping score and deciding who to ally with. It's a huge propaganda war. Rocketry went from just missiles to satellite deliveries. They started using rockets for now all these satellites. Now, the Germans were very good with rocketry. There were lots of scientists and experts. Regarding the Germans, the American press, who reported on the space race, they came up with a joke that was a running joke, and it went, uh, it was our Germans versus their Germans, meaning the Soviets' Germans. 
Werner von Braun was one of the German scientists that came to America to work on spaceflight. In December of 1959, the month that this movie was released, was when NASA started putting monkeys into capsules and sending them into space. Primates were, and still are, often used as test subjects, specifically chimpanzees. The monkey in the test in 1959 went 280,000 feet into the air and experienced zero gravity for a couple of minutes and then came back unharmed. America lagged behind the Soviets. The Soviets had Sputnik, the first satellite. They had the first pictures of the dark side of the moon. They got the first dog into space the first probe to impact the moon, and the first probe into solar orbit. However, the U.S. had the first solar-powered satellite, the first communications satellite, the first weather satellite, and the first photo of Earth from orbit, and the first imaging weather satellite. Then the effort moved to the next step, to put a human into space. There are some important ideological aspects to the space race. The Soviets gave their cosmonauts almost no control inside these vehicles that they sent up in these capsules, while the Americans gave astronauts as much control as possible. The Americans' thought process was, we're not up there, they're the only ones that can be up there, and only they can judge what is the very best to do when it's a split-second decision. The Soviet system, which devalued the individual, was that only the controllers of the craft on the ground should have control because they're the experts, so the guy in the capsule may as well be a chimpanzee. The two manned spaceflight programs in the two hegemons were Mercury for the U.S. and Vostok for the USSR. Mercury was a bell-shaped capsule designed to land in the ocean upon re-entry, and Vostok was a circular capsule designed to land on the ground. This training process for these astronauts and cosmonauts was extremely intense. The job of choosing who to end up with is not easy. You had to select a perfect specimen, strong, high endurance, and smart. There was sensory deprivation and all kinds of other tests that were done on them, including zero-gravity training. In 1961, there was a chimpanzee flight where the chimp had to pull levers and look at lights while the flight was going into space and back down. If the chimp messed up, he'd get an electrical shock to his feet, and if he did everything right, he would get a banana pellet. So if he did this all right, and it was assumed that a human could too, the chimp only got shocked a couple of times in this test, and he did what he had been training for. He landed in the ocean and was recovered in great condition. However, the U.S. was not the first country to send a man into space. The first man in space was Yuri Gagarin on April 12, 1961. He was on a Vostok 1 capsule, and he orbited the Earth once. He was made a larger-than-life figure, a true hero. The Bay of Pigs failure was right after the flight of Yuri Gagarin and that was another slap in the face to the Kennedy administration. On May 5, 1961, less than a month later, Mercury Redstone 3 was the mission that made Alan Shepard the first American in space. Redstone was the rocket that launched the Mercury 7 into space. He went 116.5 miles into the air, and the flight lasted about 15 minutes, 
while the Russian flight had lasted for 108 minutes. The U.S. one was the first pilot-controlled space flight for a human. After both nations had done the manned space flight, the next objective was to land on the moon. In 1963, the Soviet Union was the first country to put a woman into space, and she was also the first civilian in space. Her name was Valentina Tereshkova, and that was on a Vostok 6 mission. After both nations had done the manned spaceflight, the next objective was to land a man on the moon. The idea was also that the winner would do this before 1970. Kennedy himself said, before the decade is out. And the Gemini program began. Two men in the spacecraft, hence the name Gemini. Gemini 3 was the first piloted orbit change. In that test, they were able to use thrusters to change the shape and the altitude of their orbit. Gemini 5 was to have a long enough spaceflight to last the time that it would take for a craft to go to the moon and back, which is about eight days. Both Gemini 3 and 5 took place in 1965. Gemini 6A and 7 were the first two craft to rendezvous but not dock, though if they had been equipped to dock, they could have. So these are all the steps that it takes to be able to put humans on the moon. You have to do all these missions and be able to progress to the next step each time, so make sure that you can do it. In 1966, there was the first spacecraft docking, which was Gemini 8. As these missions become bigger and more complex, larger rockets were needed in order to be able to get the larger payloads into orbit. The next thing to do was to have a successful EVA, or extravehicular activity, that proves that you can do work in space. America did this in late 1966 with a five-and-a-half-hour-long EVA activity. Apollo 8 was a big milestone. It occurred in 1968. That was the first human spaceflight that left Earth's orbit and orbited the moon and then came back home. This was to demonstrate that all that's left to do is to land a craft on the moon and then take back off again. They were the first ones to see Earth from the moon, and this was the famous Earthrise photo that was taken back then. There is, in fact, a mural in this movie when they're on the moon and they see Earth from a distance, and it looks pretty close. The journey took 2.8 days to get there. They orbited the moon 10 times. The crew actually broadcasted on Christmas and read the first 10 verses of the book of Genesis. This was a hugely watched event on television. Apollo 11 was the big one. On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. They were on the moon for 21.5 hours. They had used a Saturn V rocket to get enough propulsion to get to the moon. The whole mission lasted eight days. This was not only the first humans on the moon, but also the first launch from another celestial body besides Earth. They landed in the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. They needed a smooth landing area, among other things. This was a three-man mission, one to command, one to pilot the command module, and one to pilot the lunar module. A million people watched Apollo 11 launch from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It's not unlike the scene of this movie where the astronauts get such a brilliant and honorable send-off. They landed, and they made their first steps onto the moon's surface, where Armstrong said, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 
Armstrong does say that he did say amen, but maybe the word got kind of swallowed. They walked around in the one-sixth gravity of the moon, and they got a soil sample, and they collected moon soil to bring back. They also planted the U.S. flag there. There was the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, and that prohibited territorial claims on the moon. So there was never controversy about having the American flag planted and if that represented any claim or not, because it didn't. This was about national pride, and that was what we were going for in the first place, almost. However, there was a lot of feeling that the U.S. was doing this on behalf of all of humanity. The plaque that goes with the flag reads, Here men from the planet Earth first set upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. Nixon himself said, As we explore the reaches of space, let us go to the new worlds together. Not as new worlds to be conquered, but as a new adventure to be shared. The astronauts also called uh, President Nixon at the White House from the moon. The flag that they planted was blown down when they launched to return home, so in future missions they knew to have the flag far enough away. It is actually in the 1965 film Invasion of Astro Monster, where there is a, a triple flag planting, which is the United States, Japan, and the United Nations. The biggest part of the space race was over at this point, because the goal had been achieved. The U.S. had triumphed, and they were the ones who got the prestige and the admiration for this achievement. Now the latest goal is to send a man to Mars while using the moon as a launch point. It would take eight months to get to Mars, so it would be an incredible endeavor to accomplish. NASA is going to send equipment to the moon next year and in 2020. A human trip to the moon would happen in approximately 2023. Either a lunar base or an orbiting gateway station would be built. Then the mission to Mars would begin from there. Given that tensions are high in the world right now, I'm not sure how much cooperation there will be internationally with this mission to Mars. However, there is a pretty long tradition that has developed with the International Space Station that made cooperation easier, and that may count for something. It would be a good idea to pool funding and scientific knowledge because this will be a fairly risky and costly project. There will also be private companies like Boeing and SpaceX that will likely cooperate with NASA. The riskier NASA missions are, the more sense it makes to send robots instead of humans. Losing a robot is a lot less bad PR than losing an entire crew or even one crew member. In the missions with the chimpanzees, NASA treated them as crew. They were important lives to keep safe. So doing all of this with humans is much more of a high-stakes operation, which adds to all of the excitement and the drama that ends up getting caught up in all of this. This film doesn't portray the space race, per se. It portrays what the world could and should be doing. It's an idealistic interpretation. Now, how did this film express the Japanese national spirit? Well, in this movie, Japan is in a major leadership position in the future. They're a powerful participant in the international community, and they are a gathering point for nations at the space program headquarters, which is there. So this is a lot like Destroy All Monsters, in that in Destroy All Monsters, it was Japanese technology that saved the day and it showed Japan's technological supremacy. Well, a lot of this is the, sort of the same thing. 
And it shows Japan being a very important country, very smart, very critical to the rest of the world. And it shows them at the forefront of leadership in the world community. So this is very important. It shows Japan and what they are aspiring to be. That isn't just what Ishiro Honda is aspiring for. That's what a lot of Japanese were aspiring for at the time. There are no GDP figures until 1960, so uh, once we get to the next movie, we'll be able to start reciting those figures. Daniel, thank you again for coming on to be a guest co-host for the show today. It was really good talking with you about this really unique, awesome movie that I'm, I'm glad I was able to make sure got into this season. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thank you so much for having me to talk about it. I uh, Like I said before, this is... This is one of my favorite movies. This is one of my favorite uh, projects that Toho has ever done, and it's, you know, it's I, I'm never I've never been scared away by you know a, no monster in it. You know what I mean? It's no. that's like that's certainly not a deterrent for me. I uh, I love this film, and I, it doesn't get talked about a lot in the United States, probably mostly because it doesn't have the allure of the monster in it. But it's a film that um, deserves to be. Uh, scene. It's a film that deserves to be experienced, as a good word, because this is an experience of a film. It sounds beautiful. It looks beautiful. It comes highly recommended for me, definitely. So uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come and gush about how much I love this movie. It was uh, it was definitely a fun time. Now I kind of want to go watch it again, if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> I love this movie a lot. Yeah, I enjoyed rewatching this too. It, it doesn't really get old. It's just it's just no, good no. fun. It gets all that it goes all the places it needs to. Exactly. And Daniel is at the Godzilla Novelization Project, and it is Godzilla Novelization Project.wordpress.com, and that's the site. And you can look at all of his novelizations of so many of these Godzilla movies that he has started working on. And they are all in a little various stages of development, and uh, some of them are further on than others. You're sort of going from like one to the other to the other, and I can understand why you would want to do that instead of doing one all at once. But it's it's a very intriguing project, and putting these into novelizations is something that I think. Uh, and this is all the Godzilla movies from Japan, just to clarify that. Um, that's those are the ones that you're working on. It's really amazing. What I have read is just wonderful. And Thank it's so, you, man. It's so awesome that you're doing that. this project. I'm having an absolute blast doing it. It is a massive undertaking, but uh, I'm having I'm having so much fun. I have a lo- I have so much respect for for these films aside from just enjoying them. And this is something that hasn't that doesn't exist in English. There are adaptations that exist in Japanese, but nothing in English. This is something I've wanted to do for a very, very long time, and it's going really well so far. I've, I've gotten wonderful feedback from from you and from other fans and uh, and friends that have that have really enjoyed what I've done so far, and I hope that I can continue to entertain people, create something that uh, for free, I, I might add, that's definitely something that the Godzilla fan community can enjoy and get behind and um and help me to continue doing it's just been it's just been so much fun super duper fulfilling too so um yeah i i can't wait to keep going and i i thank you again for your support of my project going forward this episode is dedicated to the immortal the great eiji tsuburaya the master of special effects from the showa era godzilla and uh, Shoya-era tokusatsu films, a giant among people who are affiliated with the Godzilla movies, and his work is 
so well showcased in this movie, I decided to dedicate this episode to him. Very, very appropriate. This is a this is a good one to dedicate to him. They don't they didn't call him Tokusatsu no Kami, the god of special effects, for no reason. He's a man who's who gave a lot of kids dreams, kids of all ages all over the world, and a man whose imagination could barely be contained by the films that he made. Just a, a man of incredible power, uh, storytelling visually. Just a, a man to be in awe of, and uh, he and his team created a lot of uh, a lot of wonder in this world during his lifetime, and still do to this day. I would not be who I am without Tsuburaya-san's influence on my life, on my art, on my uh, just on the person I am. And so, um, here's to you, old man, as they used to call him. And uh, I hope wherever he is now, he's deaf. He's looking down and thinking, man. Look at all of the wonderful, wonderful uh, dreams that I helped sow in generations of people. Yeah, and still today, still going. Still I'm, today. You've got to be proud still of today. that. Um, it's I, just amazing. I'm, I'm happy to, yeah, I'm happy to be a, um, <laughs> to be part of, part of the family, I guess you could say. Like all Godzilla fans, we all understand something. We understand what he was trying to communicate through what he what he was creating on screen in terms of his visual effects and his stories and his ideas. He was speaking a language that we understand and uh, people under, like some people don't understand it and to each their own, but we understood what he's trying, what he was trying to say and how he was trying to say it. And we saw something and continue to see something beautiful in what he, what he communicated and what he communicated is so powerful and so universal that it's going to continue to communicate with children of all ages, future generations, doesn't matter what language you speak, here in America, in Japan, anywhere in the world, what he created, what he birthed, what he put into this world will continue, and it will continue to spread wonder, a sense of wonder and beauty and inspiration. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter how old you are, this man's work speaks to our hearts, and um, it will continue to do that until the end of time. I fully believe that. Very well said. Thank you. <laughs> the next episode of this podcast will be 1961's The Last War. And this is a, another uh, non-kaiju movie that is uh, still tokusatsu, though, that will be covered in this season. There are a few movies that yeah. are either disaster movies or they're like, uh, the next one, where it's a, well, sort of a disaster movie, yeah. Sort of a disaster movie. More, more of a war film. <laughs> yeah. More of a, the consequences of war film. Um, if, if you... Yeah, if, the ne you know, like, the World War II yeah. was bad, but the next one, if, it, if we do have one, is going to be a doozy, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the film that, that basically took the premise behind Godzilla and removed the metaphor of the monster. So if they, if, if that gives you an indication of how brutal and heart wrenching this film is, uh, just just stay tuned. It's a it is a powerful, effective movie, and it's definitely going to be a fun one to have dissected. Because again, it's not talked about that much in the United States, but no. it definitely deserves attention. Yeah, and and I me having to do with with NATO and everything, I, I I've been able to study the idea of a nuclear war and uh, all, all that quite. A lot through the lens of NATO and uh, the, and uh, the two alliances that are in this uh, movie next next time that they're pretty much stand-ins for NATO and the Warsaw Pact. 
Exactly. It's, it's extremely interesting and uh, scary would be the word. Too. It's a very it's scary, scary film. It's a pretty scary movie. There, there, it is. There are moments where you're just like, oh my God, please no. It's, yeah. it's truly terrifying. Yeah. I'd like to send a shout out to our patron, Sean Stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. He donated at the Kaiju Visionary level. And donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what is going on with the show. You get to message me personally. And it's extremely fun to talk with listeners who are enjoying what's uh, being produced this season. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel. I'm Daniel DeManna. And this is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.